morning, everyone. Um, yeah, if you don't know, if you're new to our church, my name is uh, Dave Lomas. I'm one of the leaders and elders here at our church. I've uh, taken uh, a long break from, uh, from teaching uh, after whatever last year was. Um, and, uh, and it's been really good for my soul. I've also discovered a passion to help people teach, and I got to do that uh, through the last um, couple series in my, in my absence. Uh, today, as Jess said, we begin a brand new series that will be in collaboration with Bridgetown Church. Um, we consider Bridgetown and Portland to be like part of our family, and we love partnering with them from time to time. We did it in the year of biblical literacy a few years back, and uh, we're really stoked to do it now. John Mark Comer, a dear, close, really close friend of mine, a couple weeks ago we were together, and um, we were talking about what like the series that we're going to do in um, uh, in January, and he was saying we're doing this series, and then we were doing a very, very similar one here. So we decided to merge. Now we're a couple weeks behind them. We'll catch up to them next Sunday. We'll be doing. We'll be aligned week by week all the way through Easter. Um, now I'm going to pull us into an ongoing conversation that we've been having in the life of our church for a few years now. I mentioned it at annual vision and prayer. If you were part of that. This series is called Future Church, The Way of Life for the Church of the Future. And the reason uh, for that title, I hope, will become clear uh, in this teaching. First, I want to read a small section from where you have your Bibles open to in Matthew 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, a little section I want to read, um, two sections. The first starting in verse 13 and the second starting in verse 24. So please look down at um, uh, your your Bible and um, follow along with me. Jesus speaking, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few find it. Skip down to verse 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds his house on the rock. The rake came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like that foolish person who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. These are the words of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray for this series as we collaborate with our really close church friends in Portland. We pray that there would be this synergistic thing that you do between our West Coast cities that um, catalyze and and start um, uh, almost like a a fresh move of your spirit through the West Coast. Um, We really, really want to see this happen. We want to see... We want to see a type of renewal, a type of revival happen. And we pray it would happen as you, during COVID, prune the church in some ways and cut off the church in some ways. And this is what you do, God. You're really good at this. And and we don't like it, but this is what you do for new growth. And we pray that as there's been this trimming back, there would be new growth that happens. Um, I pray for my friend John Mark right now as he's teaching on moral relativism and orthodoxy at his church right now. I pray that you would fill him with your spirit and and I pray he would clearly communicate um, that teaching. And pray you would be uh, with me now 
filled me with your spirit. I need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, I want to start this morning with a, a little confession. This past summer, uh, I tried to shut down the entire church and use all our resources to renovate the church. Now, um, I'm explaining that before you change the channel. Uh, this is what is called a church plant. Our church is what is called a church plant. Uh, think startup church in the language of Silicon Valley. Uh, that means a, a core team moved here to root our lives here in San Francisco and start a Jesus-following church here in this city. Um, that also means that most of what we did in starting this church didn't have uh, a huge, cohesive, like 20-year, 10, even 10-year, even five-year vision as a church when we started. Uh, uh, for example, when we first started this church, um, actually right here in this room, I remember when we were like four weeks into this church plant, uh, people started emailing the church asking for small groups. And I was like, um, I hadn't even thought of small groups yet. Um, and the reason why I hadn't thought of small groups is I thought the entire church was going to be a small group for like a year. And so I didn't even think of small groups. I'm like, well, we're gonna be like 15, 20 people for a year anyways, so we'll be a small group and then we'll eventually start small groups. So we had to build small groups on the fly. We had to build a children's ministry on the fly. We had to build leadership development on the fly. It felt like we had to build just about everything we did on the fly. The only thing we had down when we started this church, other than a vision to follow Jesus and call people to do the same, is that we had a really great pour over ministry, like literal pour over coffee when you came to church. And I'm really, really still proud of that. Um, people would come in, get in line, whatever. Now, it wasn't that we didn't have a heart to do all these things when we began this church. I just honestly didn't think we would have to think about these things for years. But the church grew faster than anyone anticipated, mostly me. And so the metaphor we use a lot around our church is that um, at that time was church planting. Our church was like building an airplane in the sky. We were mid-flight. We were taking people to a certain place but as we were on our way, we still didn't have the plane fully built. And then 10 years in, COVID hit. And this was my reasoning. And the way I saw it briefly, the way I saw it was the plane was in the hangar. It's not in the sky anymore. We're in the hangar for the first time ever. Like the plane is parked. And we had an opportunity to work on the plane when it was not in the air to rebuild the plane and to add modifications that was needed for years. So I spoke to the elders and the staff and I said, we're gonna halt everything in the church and rebuild it and then reemerge after COVID with a renewed church. This line of thinking lasted for about a week and a half <laughs> before I realized with the help of the elders and the staff and meeting with people from our congregation that if we did that, we wouldn't really have a church to come back to after COVID because more now than ever, especially last year, our church needed us to be present in whatever way we could so all of our energy went to figuring out how to be present to our church. Now I share this confession, because it's good to get things off my chest like that, but there's a really compelling nugget of truth in there. Like buried deep in there, there's this compelling nugget of truth, I think, and it's this. What if we came back better? What if we came back better after COVID as a church? What if we start as we start to gather in real life again, we're kind of soft opening right now, what if we came back better? What if since we're, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel vortex that is COVID, what if we came back together with a renovated and more unified vision for the future of our church? Because the reality is, we are, in Jesus' name we are, slowly coming out of this global pandemic. And as we do, 
experts say, we won't really return to normal, but everyone says we'll turn, return to a what? A new normal. This is what everybody's saying, right? We have a new normal that we're coming back to. And that's not just true of travel and workplaces and if we'll ever shake hands or high five again. But this past year, we also saw the cultural landscape shift in the wake of COVID, in the wake of politics, in the wake of social media, in the wake of race, and the radicalization of the left and the right, just to name a few things that happened this last year. All of this adding up to a coercive and in some ways destructive effect on the church, in the US at least. We're seeing this, I'm seeing this. Every pastor I talk to is seeing this very thing. So as we come back as a church, we want to come back better. However, because in many ways it feels like the ground has shifted beneath our feet this past year, the new normal we are all coming back to will present a host of challenges for the church of the future. And these challenges that we face as we start to regather again are real and complex challenges. These challenges we have to name and we have to face head on. Now, if you're new to our church and you have become new in the last few months or even last year, or you're new to the Christian faith, what I'm about to say might sound super, super intense for you. I'm about to give us uh, some cultural topography. And as I do, I would like you to listen with this in mind, if you're new or new to the faith. We at Reality San Francisco are a community following Jesus. It is our goal, our desire, hope, and our passion to see everyone know Jesus, to learn from Jesus, and to live in faithful obedience to his teaching and his way by the power of the Spirit. So keep that lens on. That's the whole reason why we're doing this whole thing. We want people to live into the way of Jesus through his teachings and by the power of the Spirit. So what I'm about to, to name is what makes doing that so challenging in our cultural moment. So I hope you're with me. I'm gonna begin by naming eight challenges that we face, eight. Just a couple, eight challenges, okay? The first challenge that we face as we regather in this new world after COVID, um, moral relativism is the first challenge. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, best-selling author, wrote a short little book recently, which is the inspiration for this series. It's called How to Reach the West Again, where he says that moral relativism is not just a problem, but the problem of our time. This is the challenge that every single follower of Jesus and, and the church will feel in their bones as they try to live faithful to Jesus. He writes that late modern culture is the first culture based on the rejection of a sacred order. That is a transcendent supernatural dimension of reality that is the ground of all moral absolutes and promised life after death. Our culture, by and large, has rejected that and with it any ground of moral absolutes. Rather, we live in a culture where you are free to choose your own values and create your own meaning in life as long as it doesn't harm anyone else, which is absurd because harm requires an agreed upon definition of good and evil. In order to call something harmful or hateful, there needs to be knowledge, agreed upon knowledge of what is good and what is harmful. And we don't live in a world like that anymore. We don't have an agreement of what is loving and what is hateful. And thus we live with a deep moral confusion right now on what is good and what is evil, on who is good and who is evil. Now this is not a new problem, but it's more acute now that Christians live within the world of the internet where we are bombarded 
by propaganda of being true to yourself and to find and speak your truth. Notice, not the truth, because that's not a thing anymore. It's your truth. And the truth that people speak turn into tribes where different truths are at war with each other, AKA the Facebook, right, or whatever. Now here's the question. So how do we, as followers of Jesus, live in a way that is faithful to the way of Jesus and tr the truth of Jesus in a pluralistic and divided world? That's a challenge. Second challenge, the digital revolution. Um, one of my favorite movies that we watch every year, especially during Christmas time, is the movie You've Got Mail. It's like 20 years old or something like that. I hope you've seen it. It's a classic. It is such a good rom-com. Now, there's, the movie is basically about the possibilities of enemies being friends through the internet, which is funny now, <laughs> right? It's funny. Like, that concept is a funny concept, right? Like the, the question that they keep using in this movie is, are you online? It's like a big deal. Like, are you online? Oh, no, no, I tried online it before, and I couldn't really do online. Like, uh, that was the question, are you online? I laugh because you don't ask people if they're online anymore. Like, we live there now. And I don't think I'm, and literally, we live there. I mean, I'm talking to a camera right now. <laughs> You're watching me online. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that the greatest threat to our spiritual forma formation is the internet. And not just because it's distracting and addicting, those feel like old problems. New problems are tribalism and the erosion of truth and bots and conspiracy theories and cancel culture and groupthink and where you feel more at home with your tribe on the internet than you do in your own community group. And recently, Zoom fatigue has revealed that m the more we dive into our digital lives, the more it takes from us, not the opposite. And so most of, us, most of us live with these scattered and shallow connections now. And it's causing us fear and anxiety. Just jump into any school board meeting on Zoom and you will hear what kids are going through that live their lives on Zoom right now. It's not pretty. So the question is, how do we, as followers of Jesus, live as peacemakers in a world like this? How do we learn the ability to manage our minds and live in the fruit of the spirit, self-control, where we don't outsource the managing of our consciousness to screens and try to numb our anxiety by endless scrolling? That's the question. That's the challenge. Next, question, next challenge is political polarization. A mentor of mine shared with me that sociologists use a survey question to get the pulse on what divides people. The question is, how, who are you most afraid of your child bringing home for you to meet? In the 1960s, the number one answer was someone of a different race. That's what parents were most afraid of, their child bringing home for them to meet. Today, the answer, the number one answer is someone from the other political side. Politics is becoming the new Samaritan story of our time. Who was the one who picked up the bloodied man on the side of the road and cared for him and showed him hospitality? It was the person with the MAGA hat. Oh my gosh, what? I did not see that coming. That is what politics is becoming in our day. Political polarization is insane. I have a lot to say about this and we'll get into it more as we go along in this series, but how do we as a church choose the way of the radical middle? How do we keep ourselves from being radicalized by anything other than the way of Jesus? How do we see our, our commitment to the multi-ethnic family of God that will look different politically for sure, but committed nevertheless? 
Because I think many of us are exhausted and a little bit traumatized from losing relationships due to politics this last year. I am. How do we organize our relationships not based on politics, but on hospitality? That's the challenge. Next challenge, exhaustion. You're probably thinking, yes, I feel that right now. Okay, raise your hand if this sounds true of you, but you don't want to really admit it. See what I did there? <laughs> I'm too tired to live well. I don't know if that sentence resonates with you. I'm too tired to live well. Most of us, and this was me this last year to be really, 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 really honest, are so overwhelmed by the news and outrage and work and responsibilities that we just fall into this mind-numbing place of consumerism where we just want to consume content or lust or substances or stuff and we have lost all our passion to live for what is good and true and beautiful. And because we have lost our passion to live for those things, we think we can just buy them or make our Instagram or TikTok feed look like we do. And the question is, what does it look like for us to live in a way where we are passionately living for the kingdom of Christ as we were meant to? How do we live into the kingdom of God as we were called to, saved to, and created to? That's the challenge. Next, number five, careerism. For many of us, we find our identity in what we do, meaning our work isn't just what we do, it's who we are, especially here in the Bay Area. We tend to turn our careers into a kind of cult that we give our souls to, that we sacrifice for as if it were some kind of harsh God that needs our sacrifice so it can keep giving us all the good things we want in life. And this has led us not only to burnout, but to a crisis of meaning. People try to assign meaning to their careers that their careers were never meant to carry. How do we work for the common good from a place of love and contribution? And how do we, how do we make sure that work does not, that does not consume us? and make sure that like what we do for a job isn't like all the meaning that we have in life. That's a challenge. Number six, injustice. We live in a cultural moment where fighting injustice is the sweeping issue of our time, like it was in the 60s, which is really, really, really important. But how do we do justice in the great tradition of Jesus and not the new tradition of social media? I'll say that again. How do we do justice in the great tradition of Jesus and not the new tradition of social media? There are so many different definitions of justice out there. We need to zoom out to get the all-encompassing view of justice that Jesus has. Because history is full of cautionary tales of those who become the very evil they, they set out to fight. They become, they, become, uh, they use the same, the same um, rhetoric, but just from the other angle. They become just as angry, just as hateful, just as, as divisive as the other side. How do we do justice in such a way that we do not become the oppressor, but become what Jesus calls salt and light? Okay, I'm almost done. Number seven, idolatrous ideologies. This is the, a challenge. This is, this is a very, very um, powerful challenge in our day. We live in the age of ideology, in the time where many different ideologies are competing for airtime. Each of these ideologies or cultural patterns of thinking, believing, and acting have a, a perspective on what's the good and right way to live. 
And these ideologies can easily become idols and take the place of preeminence reserved for Jesus and his way of thinking, believing, and acting. An example would be the ideology of careerism, which is very prominent in, in San Francisco. Climbing the corporate ladder that's connected to capitalism, a consumeristic way of understanding the world that where the goal is to die with the highest score in your bank account. Or the ideology of progressivism. The goal is to progress or advance society by debunking old ways of thinking and believing, rebelling against the old. This is connected to the sexual revolution, which started here, or the, the techno-futurist, utopian dream, which also kind of started here. And we might believe technological advances are going to unlock a perfect society in the future. And these are just a few ideological currents that if we're honest, we all swim in here in San Francisco. And the thing with the ideologies are they're enticing because they have a bit of truth in them. Some forms of progress are great. Some elements of capitalism are helpful. But this is where we go wrong. We treat these ideologies as the idol worth our devotion and our lives in an honest self-assessment of our thoughts and belief reveal that we worship them more than we worship the God revealed in Scripture and the person of Jesus Christ. We worship the ideology of careerism. We worship the ideology of progressivism. We do that here in the city. How do we stay faithful to the way of Jesus and the great tradition of the church and the age when so many of our friends are walking away from the faith into ideologies? Lastly, and I hope you're encouraged, number eight, <laughs> individualism. We live in a world of optimization where everything can be optimized. Our shopping, our workouts, our cooking, our parenting, our mental health, and our spiritual growth are all optimized. All we need is our tablet and the internet. In other words, we don't need others, really. We just need ourselves and our tablet. Health experts say that loneliness is the great epi greatest epidemic of our time, only exasperated in COVID. Our autonomy has been bought, but at what price? This is a major challenge for the church because we're family. The church is family. We're community. Families move slow. Families are messy. Families are not transactional. They can only be nurtured into maturity, not optimized into maturity. We need to rebuild with the truth built in the very code of our existence that we need one another. We can't, nor should we, try to do life alone. So there they are. These are eight challenges that as we re-emerge from COVID and start to regather in real life as a church that we're going to face. More relativism, digital revolution, political polarization, exhaustion, careerism, careerism, injustice, ideologies, and individualism. And yet, and I've said this before, what if this was our moment? What if this was our generational moment? our once-in-a-lifetime moment to regather the church differently, to see the challenges in this new world and do something about it in our lives and the life of our community, not just give into these challenges, not just assimilate and go by the way of that worst of all type of Christian, that squishy, I don't know if anything is true type of Christian that makes you want to vomit or at least makes Jesus want to vomit, according to Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, the church in Laodicea. Now, you might not believe me, but I've, come, I've not come to discourage you. I've come to encourage you. Because there have been moments in history before where followers of Jesus has, have decided to opt out of the way of the world 
and the way the world was heading. The way of luxury and power and conquest and prejudice and pride to follow the narrow way of Jesus. It happened in the fourth century when Christianity was made favorable by Constantine. And thus Christianity became the way of power, the way of triumph, and the way of comfort. See, before that time, from the first Christians until the fourth century, followers of Jesus were persecuted and mistreated, meaning it was hard to be a Christian. There was a cultural cost to be a Christian. There was a cost you felt in your body and in your community. Think about that. To be a Christian, there was a cost associated with it. But just like that, because of Constantine, Christianity was easy. It was favorable. It was like the narrow road became much, much wider. And this was a decisive moment in church history where Jesus' followers actually decided to opt out. They actually fled. They fled to the desert to live in solitude. And years later fled and founded monasteries to live as islands of Christ-centered order in a sea of chaos. See, the cultural moments of their day threatened to water down the way of Jesus, to dissolve it into mushy nothingness, and to press it into cultural compromise. So they launched a counter movement. I believe we need another one of those moments. And the book, Beautiful Resistance, my friend John Tyson opens his book, and this, this actually intro is worth the price of the entire book. It's so good. He opens his book with a wonderful retelling of the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his intentional community and underground seminary in Thinkenwald, set up to train pastors to resist Nazism. Tyson tells a story in the book of how a friend of uh, Bonhoeffer and historian hears rumors of what he's doing in this like underground seminary, this intentional community, almost like this monastery. And he's almost afraid that he's losing his mind, that he's being too spiritual. And so he goes to visit Bonhoeffer in this place. And when his friend gets there, Bonhoeffer leads him up to a hill where on one side of the hill, you can see a Nazi training camp. And Bonhoeffer points and tells about all the rigors of training, how they're training these young men and these young soldiers and what Bonhoeffer called training for a kingdom of harshness and cruelty. And then he pointed to the other side of the hill, which his, his seminary monastery was. And he pointed to where the house was, where he was training pastors to resist this moment with the way of Jesus. And he said to his young friend, this seminary must be stronger than that Nazi camp. This must be stronger than that. The way we train followers of Jesus must be stronger than the way they're training these, these people to think this way. Discipleship in the way of Jesus must be stronger than the cultural formation we're getting from our phones and our news and our podcasts. The reason I share this story is because I believe we are, in, we are going to do something with this moment, if we're gonna do something with this moment. If we're gonna do something with this moment and all of its challenges, it will have to be as a community choosing the narrow way of Jesus together. This will not just be our elders. This will not just be our staff. This will not just be our coaches and our leaders. This will be our entire church doing this together. Bonhoeffer actually said this. He said, the renewal of the church will come from a new type of monasticism which has only in common with the old an uncompromising allegiance to the Sermon on the Mount. It is high time men and women banded together to do this. A new type of monasticism. I've been 
meditating on this word, a new type of monasticism. If you're unfamiliar with monastics, monastics lived, lived as monks, or do to this day, live as monks and nuns in intentional communities where they leave the world to live in the pursuit of the spiritual life. They just leave everything and they live very intentionally around rhythms where they cultivate the spiritual life. What does a new type of monasticism mean? I don't know about you, but I, I, I love to visit monasteries. I do visit monasteries, but I can't live in one full time. I can't leave my family and my call to the city to join one. For most of you, probably the exact same thing. But what if we can start a new type of monasticism right here in San Francisco? And by that I mean, what if we can be, what if we can be part of a future church where we collectively live in a way where we remain in the city and yet live in collective rhythms that root us into Jesus? And what if we can live into common practices that habituate us towards Jesus' teaching and his way so that we too can love the world with agape love like Jesus did? What we're about to move into in this series and beyond has been a dream of mine for over five years, almost half the life of our church. I went to a, a mentor of mine six years ago, and I sat down with him and I said, um, I want to create a rule of life that we live by as a church, like a church order. I want a, a way that we all live together. And I said, I really think it's the future for churches in cities, in our moment, in our cultural time, today. I want to do it. Can you help me do it? And he's a masterful um, spiritual writer and um, uh, kind of this, this is like seeped into his bones. I was asking him like, how do we do it? I want to do this. It was like almost six years ago. And he said, go and discover your rule as a church. Don't make one. Discover it. Don't make it. So over the past almost six years of learning practicing, teaching, failing, and beta testing some things, I believe we're close to discovering our rule of life as a church. Now, quick note about a rule of life. Now, if you're getting freaked out about the word rule, it's okay, a lot of people do. Uh, the rule of life, notice it's singular, not rules of life, we're not giving you rules of life here, it's a rule, the rule is from the Latin word regula, which we get the word like regular or regulation. Um, there's, very, there's debates over the origin of the world, but, but so scholars argue that it was the word used for a trellis and a vineyard. That metaphor is used early on by teachers who took Jesus' metaphor of the, the vine to its logical conclusion. If you are to abide in the vine, to be fruitful and bear much fruit, Jesus said, there are people that believe that you need a trellis to do that, some kind of support structure to lift up the, the, the vine from the ground and to point, um, to allow certain points of growth. Otherwise, the vine without a trellis will bear not just a fraction of the fruit that it would typically bear if it's on a trellis, but the fruit that it does bear is just vulnerable to predators and disease on the ground. In the same way for followers of Jesus, to abide in the vine and bear much fruit, we too need a trellis or we need a kind of life structure to create space to abide in Christ. That's what a rule of life is. My, my friend John Mark Comer says, uh, a rule of life is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he would do if he were us as we live in alignment with our deepest desires. 
And so after a bunch of experimentation and trying and seeing what's, what's good in our church, we think we've, we've come really close. We, our elders and staff, think we've come really close to our rural life, and it looks like this. The practice of fasting, the practice of Sabbath, the practice of scripture, the practice of silence and solitude, the practice of hospitality, the practice of vocation, the practice of generosity, and the practice of community. Let me explain this. Notice our logo is built around these. If you look on the screen, oh, let me see here. Okay, right there. Um, yeah, keep that logo. So if you notice on the screen, this is our Reality San Francisco logo that um, was created by us by a very um, talented designer a few years ago. And the logo was designed um, to be, first of all, like an intersection of, of, of city, of the city. Uh, if you notice, like there's like buildings and there's an intersection in the middle. Um, because he said, you guys are like a, a, uh, like a city-focused church. But also, this also forms a cross because he's like, you're a Christ-centered community. But notice there, there's arrows pointing in and arrows pointing out. There's this rhythm in our church of inward interiority work and outward movement renewal in the city. Community following Jesus, like this interior following formation, this terraform of our souls, and then outward work in the world. And so if you notice, there's four arrows that point in and four arrows that point out. Now, the reason why I think this is important is because every monastic order, order is built around two things, prayer and work. Every single order is built around prayer and work. Why prayer and work? Prayer draws us to God, work sends us into the world. Prayer centers and quiets us, work energizes us. Prayer restores us to God, work allows us to participate in God's restoration of the world. Gerald Sitzer in his wonderful book, Water from a Deep Well, says it like this. We divide these two activities at our peril. On one hand, without work, prayer becomes root, vacant, and irrelevant an empty discipline that shows little evidence of the deep concern for the world. It loses its purpose, it lacks passion, turns inward, serves the self. We mouth the words, but there is nothing at stake. It does not seem to matter much whether our prayers are answered or ignored. On the other hand, without prayer, work becomes an idol. We work to make money, to gain power and prestige and advance in our careers. We become presumptuous too, thinking our work can accomplish good things without actually relying on God for wisdom and power. But work that pleases God and serves the common good of humanity must have God involved in it, for only God can accomplish what has transcendent value and eternal significance. Human effort is necessary, but it's not sufficient. So let's go back to the logo again. Notice our logo has this inward and outward movement. The inward movement is prayer. The outward movement is work. Work and prayer, work and prayer. The inward practices of prayer are prayerful fasting, and prayerful Sabbaths, and prayerful silence and solitude, and prayerful reading of scripture. Our outward disciplines are the, the work of hospitality in our world, the, the work of vocation that what we do or feel called to do, the work of generosity and serving the poor and the local church, and the, the, the work of community. And the plan in this series is to take each of the challenges that we face and dream an alternative vision for the church and look at a practice that is specifically geared to habituate us from the world and toward the kingdom as we develop a rule of life in our church. It, this, is, this is stronger than that kind of stuff. So 
Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about being a community of holiness in a culture of moral relativism through the practice of fasting. A community of peace in a culture of fear through the practice of silence and solitude. A community of peacemakers in a culture of, of political polarization through the practice of hospitality. A community of rest in a culture of exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. A community of contribution in a culture of careerism through the practice of vocation. A community of justice in a culture of social Darwinism through the practice of simplicity and generosity. A community of orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry through the practice of scripture. And a community of tight-knit loving relationships and a culture of individualism through the practice of community. Now we're going to go slow, meaning this is an eight weeks plus series, but this will take us years to do. We're not asking the church to start doing all of these things right now. You're going to expand into these things and grow into these things. My hope is that as you make these a part of your rhythm to where they become second nature for you, and this might take years, that down the line, in five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you're someone who knows how to live in self-control through the practice of fasting. You just know how to, how to live in self-control. You know how to live with yourself without a phone through a practice of silence and solitude. You, you know how to welcome in the stranger into your home post-COVID through the practice of hospitality. You know how to rest on, the, on, a, on a Sabbath, on a Sunday or Saturday, whatever your Sabbath is, you know how to rest and put away your work and go, I trust all that to God. I will never finish my to-do list. I'm resting in God now. You're someone who knows every single time you wake up to do the thing that you do, you're called to do that thing. And it's not just for a paycheck. It's not just so you can buy a bigger house or a better car or go on, on trips and to visit all the Airbnbs in the world. You're someone who is so generous that you don't even know you're being generous. It's second nature for you. You're someone who loves to slowly read the scriptures and you look to the scriptures to guide the way you think and live and you want to live in community. You know you need other people. Now this is, I believe, this is like basic Christianity but in our world today, this is radical Christianity. This is a radical way of living but you can't just make this happen like this. You have to practice this and the hope is this, the hope is that this is not trying to optimize your transformation. This is actually going after a renovation of your entire life from the inside out. This uh, three years ago, um, Ashley won a Peloton bike, those Peloton bikes with the, the stationary, the bikes you go really Fasten them, but you don't go anywhere. Like, have a screen on it, the Peloton bikes. And um, she won one. She won it on the internet. Long story, I'm only, I won't get into that. But, um, so, for the last three years, I've been, I've been dabbling in Peloton. <laughs> I'll get on it a few times a week, you know? And I'll get on it, and I'll be on my phone, or I'll listen to really good music, or I like this instructor. It tells me I'm awesome, or whatever. And I'm just on it. I'm dabbling in it. Now, the main reason why I, for the last three years, I get on the Peloton was I like to, you know, manage some stress, it helps, and get rid of some guilt from like too much like Panda Express or something right there. Like I like feel less guilty when I'm doing this, right? But this year something clicked, like this year, where I'm at the age, um, at the age where I think I like, I need to train 
I need to start training. I need to start using this bike to train, to set goals and, and markers and power zones and all this stuff. So I'm using all the things. I'm tr- like this year, I like something clicked. I'm like, oh, I need, to be, I need to be present in my daily engagement with this thing. And I need to change not just this thing, but all of my habits and routine as it comes to like health, like physical health. Now, I say that because many of you uh, dabble in Christianity. Dabble in it. Show up to church on Sunday. Maybe pop in a Zoom community group. You do that to get rid of guilt from the way you live. Like it just gets rid of some of the guilt, manages some of the guilt I have. Or maybe even some stress. But I think the word for our church today is it's time to train. It is time to train in righteousness. It is time to train in living the way of Jesus. We need to begin this with a renewed commitment to the narrow way of Jesus. That's what we need. We need the power of the Spirit to invigorate our hearts through us, maybe even confessing, confessing and repentance. We're about to, I'm gonna actually invite the worship team up right now. We're about to sing a song about like, give us clean hands. We need to start with this like repentant sort of acknowledgement that we dabble and that it's time to start living in the way of Jesus, start, to start choosing the narrow way in this world that we live in. And that means we have to opt out. There's things that we need to train out of our lives and things we need to train into our lives. There are things that we need to opt out of the world and opt into the way of Jesus. And that, it's time for that. It's time for that to happen now. And so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to close your eyes and open your hands in a posture of giving or receiving, whatever you're doing. If you're giving something away, you have to open your hands. Or if you're receiving something, you have to open your hands. Whatever that is to you. Because some of us right now need to give. We need to give over some of the, the ways that we've been living. Some of the mental maps that we have constructed of how we think the world works. We need to give up some coping mechanisms and even some, some ways that we've been using and abusing church and Christianity. And we need to receive the narrow way of Jesus. We need to receive the gift of the, and the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. Jesus did not save us simply from something, but for something. We were saved to be disciples of Jesus, ambassadors of Christ that go into the world and preach the gospel. This is why Christ has saved us. And it will be hard and it will be difficult. In this new world, Christianity faces all kinds of challenges. No longer is Christianity just considered this thing off to the side, but it's now being considered more and more of a threat in our world. And not because of the political stuff, just because of the way the world is going. And so we need to commit to the loving way of Jesus that doesn't retaliate, that seeks forgiveness, that prays for our enemies. But church, we cannot get there just by thinking that. We have to train for that. We have to become these kind of people. And so Holy Spirit, we, we ask God right now, do this in us, please. We confess our sin, our disobedience, the way that we've used and abused our faith, 
the Christian name, your name, Jesus. We want to step into the narrow way of Jesus. As you say on the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, um, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to, to eternal life. Lord, we want to go the narrow way through your teachings. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.